Welcome to Cherry Hibiscus Tea, where we meet the artists behind the words. I'm your host, Ellen Bennett, and today with us is an author I'm very excited to sit down with today, Literary Stud. Literary Stud, welcome. Thank you. So excited to be here with you. Thank you for joining us. For those of you who are meeting Literary Stud for the first time, Literary Stud is an author from Dallas, Texas, where she resides with her wife and her fur baby. Literary Stud enjoys competitive sports, classic movies, photography, historical documentaries. Literary Stud is an author of books and short stories, which highlight the rich inner life and unique struggles of Black lesbians. And now that you've become acquainted with our guest, Literary Stud, tell us a little bit more about yourself. How did you grow up to become Literary Stud? Oh, goodness. Um, well, like, yes, like you said, I am from Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much for the wonderful introduction. Um, born and raised, I am in my 40s, so child of the 70s, lived through the 80s type of thing. I have uh, been writing probably since elementary school, just short stories here and there that would just kind of come to me. I was one of those kids that read really early in life. I believe my mom taught me around the age of three. So I've always been an avid reader and these, you know, characters would just, you know, invade my brain, so to speak, with these different plots and stuff. Um, and my active imagination, I just had to get it down on paper. Um, I wouldn't say that, uh, most of my writing back then had anything to do with my sexuality, uh, just mainly because I'm also a preacher's kid. So, the the amount of exposure I had to anything that was uh, gay or lesbian related was nil. So um, my writing about my community basically really didn't start to probably about 20 years ago um, when I finally found myself and figured out that the, the stories I wanted to tell, uh, well, excuse me, a lot of the stories that I read did not include people like me or people who I felt you know, look like me. So that's really what started it all. Okay. Now I have a very important question. Um, I was reading because I'm very nosy. You will come to find that I'm like Pearl from 227 as far as being nosy. But I was reading that you're a lover of competitive sports. Do you watch football? Yes, I love football. You love football. Do you, you are you a Dallas fan? I am. A- answer this. I was going to say, answer this very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am a diehard Dallas fan. Um, I'm not, I don't go as far as to, um, I don't talk much smack, especially this season. We really don't have much smack to talk about, but uh, no, I do we enjoy, really don't. yeah, <laughs> I do just, you know, enjoy just the game itself, um, seeing the players, how they've progressed. My mother is a diehard sports fan. Uh, she'll watch everything, including golf. So um, I like to get into conversations with her starting in college, and she knows all these players' names and you know their stats and everything like that. So it's just really nice to see the come up for a lot of them. Um, the other part of it is, yes, that, that adrenaline rush of your team when they do win anyway. <laughs> Well, we're we're kind of short on wins this season, but I, I think we can pull ahead. I mean, at some point, once we get our quarterback back and everything goes back to normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we took a loss, and I think that's what um, 
I think that we were figuring that out really quick that he was worth more than what a lot of people had uh, estimated him to be. So, yeah, I mean, Big Ben did did the job for us. I mean, he he made the Steelers sweat this weekend, but yeah. I don't know. I, I would rather have Dak back. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And I was rooting for him anyway. Like he's that underdog story that I like as well. So, yeah. so yeah, you, you like to root for those kind of guys. Yes. Um, but I didn't bring you on here to talk about football and I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we have a lot of football fans in the house. Maybe they're like freaking out right now because we're talking about football. <laughs> right, you guys aren't talking about my team, so I do not care. No. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, no, like take that somewhere else. But that's that's all right. I'm used to people not liking my team or, or our team, as it were. Yes. But <laughs> I did want to get into something you said just a little bit earlier. Um, here at Cherry Hibiscus Tea, we are all family. We are queer Black creatives, and we all have our coming out stories. And I've heard a lot of stories by now, lots of stories of people coming out in childhood or coming out to their children, coming out to their parents, and no two stories are alike. Um, now, I, I remember hearing you say distinctly that you are preacher kid. Um, so yeah. So tell us, when did you realize that you were a lesbian and who's the first person you told? Like, what was it like realizing as a preacher's kid that you were also a lesbian? Um, well, I would have to say probably like the age of nine, the age of 16, I could put a name on it. Um, but being a preacher's kid and not having any type of um, exposure to it, I would say really third grade is when I had or would start to have my first, you know, uh, imaginary fantasies of, of girls I had crushes on in my class. Um, I can actually still remember her name, which is odd. Um, but it's, it, I would have to say then that I knew that for one, that this wasn't right. Um, at least in what I'd been raised as right. Um, not what I came to believe later. So it was definitely something that I hid for the longest time in my teenage years. You know, you have close friends. They tend to call you out on things that you may not, um, want to deal with just yet, uh, which usually kind of really happened all through, um, all through high school. Probably there was always a time that somebody was, you know, teasing me about something or, you know, um, uh, saying, you know, dyke behind my back or whatever, or, you know, thinking that I'm trying to look in on girls in the stalls, that type of thing. But, uh, when I turned 19, I was waiting tables, um, at a popado in the, in the neighborhood of Dallas, um, and all these all these years, I could justify my crushes on other women or girls as that, you know, they were my friend. Uh, we spent a lot of time together. That's just really just how much I like them type of thing. But I've developed a crush on um, a woman that um, I barely knew. That it was really just like she just kind of just struck me as very, very attractive. And everything that I felt, you know, growing up, you know, was intensified. And I had to... I had to deal with that. Um, I'd say it was about six months and and six months of figuring it out um, that, okay, yeah, you know, you've really just been pushing this down and hiding this for, for so long and you're, you're going to have to make a decision. 
um, told myself that I would tell my parents when they directly asked me. Um, chickened out a few times when I got that direct question, but um, finally, you know, once I got into a relationship, it was just one of those things of um, what are you going to do about it? And I say my parents are, you know, they're evangelists now, but it's really more extended than that. My grandfather was also a minister and we were a part of his church. Um, that's kind of just one side that has multiple, multiple ministers on them, multiple ministers on my dad, on my dad's side, um, that are involved with, you know, pretty big churches. So it was always, it's always actually, even now, you know, I don't want to throw it in their face. You know, I, literary stud is, 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 is a pen name, but it's also, I guess my label because I'm, I'm a masculine identified lesbian. So there's no way you're not going to be able to look at me and not know what my preference is um, or what my sexuality is. So um, it, even now, it's still just want to make sure that I don't embarrass them in any kind of way um, or make them feel embarrassed because I don't, I don't think I would embarrass anybody, to be honest. Um, they're better about it now. But like I said, I'm 43 and this was when I was 19. So we definitely went through a lot of roller coasters up and ups and downs of figuring it out and learning how to respect each other um, they had their moment at least a couple of years of it's a phase um, but then my mother finally had to just really admit to me that she had a feeling about me around the age of 13 and um she couldn't really she couldn't deny it after that point after then it was really just them figuring out how to deal with it because I had gotten to the point of not caring and having had cared so long about my outward appearance and what other people thought about me I had really gotten to the point where it just didn't matter anymore if I if I continue to feel this way um who am I pleasing you know it's it's my life Whatever happens when I die is what happens when I die. So no one else should care about that except me. Okay, now you mentioned um, your mom started to catch on around the age of 13. Like, have you always been, um, I would say, like masculine presenting oh, or yeah. like a tomboy? Yes, yes. I definitely never, like I said, church was a... Uh, uh, a weekly, well, six days a week really for me, but, you know, spent my life in a dress that I hated, <laughs> like all the time, uh, getting my hair done, uh, which is funny now that I, I tend to have a, a longer type of hairstyle, but um, I wanted a really, really short hairstyle at that point. Um, I would steal my brother's clothes, steal my dad's clothes. Um, I stole a trench coat and wore that for about a year, but they did it too, though. My dad's a mechanic, so I would be outside working on cars with him, mowing the lawn, getting on top of the roof, putting Christmas lights up. He'd send me with my mom on errands and tell me to make sure my mom got home okay. So he basically instilled all these type of masculine protective feelings in me anyway. 
So it really wasn't much of a surprise when they <laughs> thought about it. I, I used to joke that, well, they, they really trained me to be a masculine lesbian, to be honest with you. So <laughs> they shouldn't really had anything to complain about. That is interesting. Like I've never, that's something I've never heard of before. Um, and yeah, that it's almost like, like you said, they were training you to be like, to, to be a masculine of, of center lesbian, to have that protective instinct. That's why I'm just like, my mind is blown right now. Yeah, de definitely. Like I'm, and, um, even now to this day, you know, if I'm, I'm a little old for it now, but when I was younger and I would, you know, actively work on my own cars and things like that, I call my dad, you know, you know, am I doing this correctly? And he'd quiz me on it. You know, I know my, no daughter of mine is asking me how to change a radiator. I mean, and these are things that, you know, I had to change that radiator on the side of the road, <laughs> but it got done. And, you know, parts of me, of course, love that fact that we had that time together because I learned a lot from him. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't in, in what the, the more traditional feminine roles of, I wasn't in the kitchen learning how to cook with my mom. I wasn't, you know, learning how to sew or anything, any of those things that they really thought that I should be able to know how to do. Um, but they knew I wasn't interested in it either. Wow. Um, I just have one more follow-up question as it relates to uh, being a stud. Uh, we don't shy away from talk about gender roles and gender presentation, sexuality on this show. Um, and especially as it relates to the question of race. And um, historically, the word stud has been used to describe Black masculine of center women. And I've seen people out there who fall on both sides of the coin. There are some people who feel like the historical definition of the word stud is what it should be. And it should always be referred to as black masculine of center women forever and ever. Um, and there are other people that just don't like the term at all because of the historical context of the word. And then there are others still that feel that masculine of center women of all races, not just black, can identify as a stud. Um, and I was just kind of wondering where you fall in that spectrum. Um, I actually really hadn't thought of it to that to that degree. Although I will say that I have associated the term more with black and Latina masculine of senior lesbians more than um white lesbians um or, or even um in, of any other creed or nationality to be honest with you and, I, and i'm not sure if it's really just because of the way they carry themselves um, to me and having kind of have floated through both communities because when i first came out black women really didn't really weren't giving me the time of day um <laughs> and so my first few uh, relationships were with white women it's just it's a it's a different type of masculinity where if they haven't come from a more um, urban neighborhood, I think that has a lot to do with the experience of it. Um, for for me personally, um, 
I would have to like I, I joke a lot that me and my wife are the most heterosexual lesbian couple on the face of the earth, just because from what we came from and the dynamic of masculinity and femininity in our home is really how we have approached our own marriage, and it works for us. Um, and so I think a lot of times in the um, black and Latina households that balance or that um, spectrum is still there. Hardcore. Um, even now, my mother-in-law will fix my plate like I am a six foot four, 300 pound man, and I'm going to eat all this food just because she views me as the man of the house. And my wife had to tell me that one time because I noticed that not only was I getting bigger, bigger portions of food, but my cup, my drinking cup was bigger than everybody else's. And she said, no, she always gives the big cups to the men. And I think it's a different type of dynamic or it's not as hardcore delineated in the white lesbian community of that masculinity and femininity. So that's probably why I never associated that a, a white masculine-centered lesbian could actually be a stud. Um, but then referring to how you said as far as the historical context of the word, um, I'm a word lover, I think, that as, as a lot of writers are. And I do think that, yes, yes, words hurt. Um, but if you take it and make it your own, um, you're either choosing to be hurt by those words or use them as a shield of yourself. Um, for me, it's more comfortable for me to say stud just because when I think about what is everything that I've seen, just there's no stud book, of course. There's no list that says this is what you are or this is what you have to do, although a lot of us tend to um, stick to unspoken rules. Um, yeah, there's a running joke about that yeah. in different communities because someone's always coming out with stud should do this, femme should do this. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, it makes my head hurt. Yeah, no, I'm not of that mind frame. Be you, you know what I'm saying? Like, because, like you said, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know too many studs that would sit there and admit that they like the Golden Girls or that they like musicals, um, which which I love. Um, I will definitely I'm not I'm not a, a twerker by <laughs> any means. But then I, I had actually, when I came back out of a bad relationship, back into the, into the um, community, and I found, and that's when I was approached actually with the word stud, I was told that studs don't dance. I love to dance. You know, that was my whole point of going to the club as a preacher's kid. That was one thing we couldn't do. So, you know, I was also that some of the mentality of what studs have. I always like to say that, yeah, I'm probably about... 80, 85% masculine. I would say the rest of me is still all my femininity as far as compassion and my nurturing behavior and things like that. Do I feel more comfortable in, you know, boxer shorts and a sports bra? Definitely. Um, have I put on a dress to please my mom for a funeral? Yes, <laughs> but it, I didn't enjoy it. Um, I, know, I think the unspoken rules are just, they, you, they get ridiculous. Um, you, you, we can have so many unspoken rules. And that's why I'm, I feel like, you know, I've always joked about that. I'll just, you know, write a book one day, which I probably won't because I think that's too, <laughs> I don't think really feel like those type of questions in my inbox. Um, 
but I, I do think that we stick too hardcore to labels. I don't care if you if you rock one or you don't. Um, whatever you believe of the reason why you don't or you do rock one, I'm going to respect and treat you accordingly because it's just it, we're asking too many people to be the same but be different at the same time. That is perfectly said. Perfectly said. I couldn't have put it any better than that. Now, on your website, now here's where I'm going to take a shift into your writing, but then like it's it's more of a, a smoother shift because of the question I'm about to ask you. You don't know what I'm going to what I'm about to ask you, but I promise you it's somewhere where those two meet. Okay. Um now, on your website, because I told you I'm very nosy like Pearl from 227, I saw that you had mentioned, and I was speaking to Verde Arzu last week about the same issue, about how a lot of lesbian stories have a narrow lens, um, like shows like The L Word, as much as we love them, like they don't really represent the lives of Black masculine of center lesbians. Um and like they don't try. So like when did you go from realizing that that perspective was missing from like lesbian stories to like feeling that you yourself needed to start to write those stories? When I was in college cuz I, I have a um, I have a degree in English and writing and in one of my in my creative writing class we were uh, the the task was to write a story from your past in a certain way, but um, ethnically, so to speak. Um, I found myself it, that it was difficult to write because I had never written through my own eyes. Uh, a lot of my writing did really didn't have too much description as far as the characters, and um, it left a really kind of vague. Um, left it up to the person's imagination, used a lot of the personality instead of actually writing about skin tone or face shape or anything like that. Um, and so when I wrote the, the short story and I had to look at myself basically to be able to put my, you know, to remember that memory, to put it down on paper, I thought about all the lesbian romance stories that I wrote, that I'd read up until that point. And I could not recall one that had, you know, a lesbian of color, much less a masculine lesbian of color. Um, and so I just, it's just kind of one of those aha moments or one of those moments of like, well, duh, idiot, you could write it. Um, and they just started off, it just started off like that as far as, well, what am I going to write about? I mean, because since it's never been out there, you you know, like most like most students of writing, you start off emulating someone, and then you find your voice and you shift it and shape it, and you keep you keep working on it. But there was nothing to emulate for writing about masculine of center lesbians, um, especially of color. So it was just me without reading anyone else's stuff back then, not really being able to get you know, to have good access to some of this. Of course, this, we're talking about before Google was even invented. So there was no, uh, there was only one bookstore um, that carried gay books in the area back then. Um, and of course, walking through there, none of those was, you know, almost, of course, most of them were for white gay men. 
Um, they had nothing to do with, you know, too many lesbians anyway, like I said, and much less lesbians of color. So I just figured that, you know, I can sit here and keep complaining about that I can't find the stories that adequately represent me, or I can write those stories. Very true. Now, what do you want to accomplish most in your writing and telling these stories? Um, to sound a little bit crazy, get these people out of my head. Um, <laughs> it, they, no, that does not sound crazy yeah. at all. <laughs> Doesn't I, I? I'm as a writer, no. Like you, you'll you'll be sitting there just minding your business, working, and then some character will just start chattering about something that is completely the opposite of what you're doing right then and there. So I get it. And that does not sound crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's about it. Like with, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, if like, like, you know, you have notebooks and notebooks of stuff of these chatters of these quick snippets of a plot that, you know, came to you while, you know, you were taking a shower or you were driving or, um, you know, while, like you said, while you're in the middle of something, let me get this down. I have, you know, I'm, for every new idea, I buy a new notebook because I'm going to not only, you know, outline my stuff in that I'm going to research is going to be all in kind of one, one spot for me when I get ready to actually start typing those words. But it's really, you know, especially when you self-publish, it's, it's, it really, I guess for writers in any way, except unless we were back in the day of having patrons, um, it's really just to get the words out, get get your art out there. And sometimes it has nothing to do with the money that you might make. Um, my wife calls herself a writer's widow because if I haven't written for a while, it, it's it's painful almost. It's it's like it's it's a part of me missing. It's that. It, it it is it is my constant side chick, honestly, um, because she'll tap me on the shoulder and be like, "Hey, Studley, you you have been paying attention to me, and you had a story sitting over here, so I need you to do something." And if I don't, those characters will come bother me. Um, and it's just I have to I have to get it out. I completely get it. Now, I just want to backtrack to what you said earlier about writing things down on paper, because I was reading about that too, and I found it very interesting. And it also ties into something else you said about editing. Now, you like to write your first drafts down on paper, like in these notebooks. Like, How do you get your inner editor to shut up long enough for you to write a story? Oh, it's hard. (laughs) It's hard. Uh, what I make myself do just to kind of give myself some compromise on that, I make myself at least write three chapters before I type it up. And then when I type it up, I do not go back and read what I wrote. And it takes discipline because, of course, we're constant editors. Um, I make myself at least get through the first draft, um, the first draft of the outline, a first draft of the story, get through the first draft and then go back and edit. Uh, the only time I will go back and edit if it is if I'm experiencing some type of writer's block that I need to jog my juices again. Like this is what this is the flow you were going into. Uh, this is the feeling that you were having when you were writing about this particular um, circumstance, scene, uh, dialogue. Um, but, but lately, um, probably the last couple of years, and this is 
telling you how long it's taken me to get to this discipline. I really just make myself just write the first draft and then you can go back. And it's really more of a, a feeling of accomplishment when I do that because my worst thing was always the ending. Um, I would get to go back and editing and I would never get to the ending. And then I've restarted it so many times that I'm still not getting to the ending because well, I need to go back and beef this place up, this spot up real quick, you know, because I'm going to talk about this later on. Well, instead of doing that, you know, scroll up to that spot that you feel like you need to beef up, put a comment or a note in uh, Microsoft Word or whichever, come back to it. Yeah, that's that's a lot of discipline. And actually, I'm sitting here like taking mental notes like I should totally write that because if there's one thing I lack when it comes to writing, it is definitely discipline. <laughs> I know there's there's some people that say write every day, write every day. And I'm just like, that just that sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to force it. To me, it's, it's like forcing it. And that's even worse than having writer's block. Um Sometimes the, the music hits you and you're like, okay, it's flowing now. It's good. And then sometimes you're like, okay, I'm just going to get these few words out. I can come back and flesh this out later because this is actually where not, where my mind is not right now. Um, mm-hmm. Like you say, when those people visit, it could be dialogue. It could be you see this particular scene that you want. You know, you need to find the right words for it to adequately describe it so someone else can see it as they read it. Um Sometimes you just have to come back to that in in editing. Now, for those of you who are not aware, Literary Stud is also a fellow author on Black Cherry. And honey, I'm about to go complete fangirl on you. So maybe it's good (laughs) that this is like an audio interview because I don't know, maybe I'm going to make your face red or something like that. But... Let me tell you guys, I only needed to read Anticipation once to know that it needed to close out the book, like, because the story had me cracking up the whole time, and it was just frustrating as hell, and it was sexy as hell, and it's absolutely in the spirit in which I envisioned the anthology. Now, was that based on a true story, or was it 100% made up? I'm trying to think of the parts. Because I always, I, I always include myself some sort of way. I think the part of it is true as far as I that at some point in my past I had to wait. Um, now a lot of it is added because of you know did not live with that person that type of thing. But yes, parts of it is true. I gotcha. I gotcha. I was just sitting there like I'm thinking specifically about the I, I will never not hear the the whacking of the golf club in my head. I just I clearly hear that in my head. Like it was just it was just very clear. And like you could just feel the frustration with every whack. And I was just like, oh man. Oh now I do play golf. So yes, that that is a uh that part is true. There you go. There you go. Now, guys, Literary Stud also has a series of books called Maxie's Place, and they all take place within the backdrop of a restaurant in which intersecting characters, they all have their own story. Now, where did you get the inspiration for Maxie's Place? I waited tables for many years. I waited tables at three different restaurants um, through my 20s and 30s. And I, it's actually probably every restaurant I ever worked at had some type of drama 
going on um, every day, every shift. Usually because I'm Aries and I'm messy, I would be the one starting the drama or starting some type of conversation to flow across the floor so I can be entertained for the night. Um, but the one th- <laughs> but the, yeah, I'm messy. Yeah, uh, I, I believe one night I had started the whole, I started the question down the line of what is your favorite position? And, you know, it's, I, I knew who to start it off with because I knew that she'd giggle and she'd like, oh, you think it was a dare. And it just, you know, dominoed from there. Um, finally got to my best, my best buddy. And we were the only two black people that worked at this restaurant. And he looked up when he heard the question, he looked at me and he's like, I knew this had to be you. Like, how did this girl come up to me asking me what my favorite <laughs> my favorite position is? But, you know, I was entertained for the night. Um, the only thing I didn't like about that is that, I, you know, like I said, I wanted to present uh, a strong masculine center character. Um, it, but I wanted to be an ensemble of characters and I wanted it to, you know, I those nighttime, you know, date or you know, nighttime soaps when I was growing up, like Dallas and Dynasty and Knox Landing that I used to watch as a kid. Um, that's really what made me think of writing it the way that it is. Uh, just the dr- the drama of it that there's always something going on uh, to be continued. Um, but um, yeah, it's really just about just the the drama of working at a restaurant and everybody had something going on. So you plotted it like in your head as a soap, like, was it always intended to be like a series of books? Like, how did you go about just saying, okay, I want this story here and that story there? Like, how, how did that unfold for you? Well, um, let's see, back in my, my space days, um, the story actually came to me first um, as characters invading my brain. I got this whole and, you know, vision of um, a scene in my head. And I just started writing it down. Um, and it was of the, one of the main characters, Cole, and her interaction with someone else. Um, and it kind of ballooned from there. And it, it started off as being, you know, I would write so many pages and I would post them on MySpace. Um, I think I got up to about four different things. And it was just really just a kind of continuation, I think, is what, what maybe what people use Wattpad for. Um, or something like that, where they just write a few pages, publish them, and then write some more. I had intended it to be that way. Um, now, a friend of mine had read the first the first one, and she said, so when are you publishing this? And I was like, well, it really wasn't the intention of that, because I hadn't even really, you know, did character evaluations, you know, all the admin stuff of being a writer, basically. I was really just writing from my soul. Um but it was after I had, it was after she asked me that, that I decided, okay, well, let's go ahead and plot this out and plan this to where, of course, it's going to have an ending, but, you know, how am I going to break this up? Um, I've gotten a little bit more of an outline of it probably the last three years or so. That's only because i had also had plans to actually make it into a web series. So I had to figure out, you know, the differentiation between what was going to be in the web series and what's actually in the books and have a better outline for it. But um, it was always intended to be cliffhanger stories to where you would get mad at me at the end of it, (laughs) but wait for the next one. 
now your your the latest book in the Maxi's Play series is Karmic Casualties, which yes. is a very interesting title, which I love. That was just kind of like, hmm. And so <laughs> tell us a little bit more about Karmic Casualties. We'll see. Well, uh, Karmic is the fifth in the in the series so far. Um, there will be twelve before it ends, um, and it's really just a it's it it brings a lot to head. Uh, the first four, or I would say the first three, were basically laying the foundation of Maxie's place. Um, the next the next three is really bringing bringing more into the you know the drama of it, the conflict of it. Is there ever going to be a resolution? to some of these issues but karmic is actually a continuation of with with number five which is memories is the beginning of they're having a holiday party for the founder of maxi's place and um this holiday party just like with any type of holiday brings a lot of past emotion into it um a lot of the the characters a lot of stuff that they're going through comes to a head basically at this party and it actually will decide um, the future of a lot of people's relationships. The two of the main characters, which are my two of my favorite characters in the world, Cole and Tasha, are really just the um, they're they're the they're the parental unit of Maxie's place. So, but they're not they're not together. But a lot of what they do influences their children, so to speak. The other the their their workers underneath them, um, and so this is actually going to be a blow up spot actually for a lot of people and karmic casualties i picked that because you know karma will get you and you have no choice but to be that casualty so if you put it out there it's coming right back absolutely and i, I think it's interesting how you said that the holiday party was going to kind of sort of be the jump off point because my brain immediately went to i don't i don't know if if you're if you or your mom watched soaps as a kid, but I was immediately thinking of the nurses ball at general hospital. Like every year when they have the nurses ball, it's always going to be something. Everything is going to come to a head. And like later on with the OC, whenever there's a party, something was going to happen. That's kind of what that reminded me of. So I'm like, yes, I can see that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's the, that's the drama of it. Like you, and and just like with family functions, you're like, okay, we're just going to go. We're having a good time. We're going to honor our founder. And then there's always something that the best laid plans, the most perfect plans, um, they always get messed up. So uh, it's the jumping off point for all the drama that's going to happen probably within the next two books or episodes that come out i like drama the messier the better (laughs) (laughs) i mean i watch cheaters all the time so i definitely i I like cheaters cheaters is a good show a lot of dallas spots on there have you seen the new the new season with peter guns yet no no it started he is actually a fantastic host is he that's Mm -hmm. perfect person for him yeah, and I feel bad for saying that because the the previous host he he died a few years ago. I, yeah, yeah. Clark yeah, Gable's that, grandson. Yeah, that was really sad. Yeah, that was very um, sad. So I just I feel awful for saying it, but I'm just like Peter Guns was like the perfect host, and I was just talking to my partner about this, like because she also watches the show sometimes. But like 
obsessively as I do. And I'm like, he's self-deprecating, he's sensitive, he can talk to the cheaters in a way that that they understand. And like one of them wanted started out wanting to fight him, but then he was giving them daps at the end. I was just like, he's just the perfect host for, yeah. <laughs> for cheaters. He knows how to, um, he, he has to know how to diffuse a situation by now. Yes, yes. He really does know how to diffuse these situations and really talk to people. And I'm like, that that is a whole skill set that most people don't realize. But it just seems like, I don't know, maybe he underwent training. But for me, I feel like it comes natural to him. <laughs> I think for some people it's like that. It's a possibility. I don't know. Uh, now, you mentioned <laughs> something about Maxie's Place, like being a web series. Like, is if you were going to, and I'm just going to give you carte blanche, like it doesn't like it could be actresses from any time but like if you could cast that series with your dream cast like who do you see playing those roles um well i I mean i will say i have enough footage filmed with actresses already um so it's kind of hard to think of anyone that's not already playing those characters i just haven't had the time to um finish editing and getting it out there um but hmm, hmm past or present see for the yeah it's kind of hard to choose because there's not really too many but in the past that's true yeah um i mean because of course you know you would say lena waith as as a definite of something but you know uh, um my characters are a range of ages. Um, that's one thing I wanted to show. Um, that there's a, a that you know the lesbian community isn't only that twenty to thirty range. It does seem like a lot of maybe not a lot. Cause of course, I haven't read everyone. Um, you know, we 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 deal with like the the that time frame where it's where it's all full of angst and I need to figure this out and you know things like that. My characters know who they are, but they're just at different age ranges. So Cole and Tasha, they're around my age; they're in their forties. So you know, thinking of who would be them, that there's not really anyone I can think of. Um, I'm really trying to think too. I can probably pick the feminine types more than I can pick the masculine ones. Yeah, I was going to say, let's make it easier and Um, and stick to the feminine characters. Let's see. So, and I'm trying to get my actor's faces out of my my brain as I do that. I would say uh, for Tasha, which she's, like I said, she's around my age, um, the, the, just the personality of her, um, I would say, Loretta Divine, honestly, uh, just because she's a nurturing, all her characters are really kind of nurturing, but then she'll like, give you the truth too. And that's actually, you know, who, who Tasha is fundamentally is that she's a very nurturing character, um, but she'll tell you like it is. Um, the main character, Ava, and uh, how she's kind of self deprecating, but a little. Um, naughty girl, basically, I would say Kiki Palmer, more than likely. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, uh, very, you know, because Kiki's a very, very talented actress. Um, and then she had her own 
she does her own thing basically and she doesn't let anybody get in her way of that and i would say that uh that would probably be a close match to to that character um margie who is cole's mother um honestly if my mom would would act it would be her um just because of the 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 uh support she has for her for her child um even when even when people didn't really agree with with it so i don't really have uh, a famous actor for margie because she's definitely based on my mom so i can only see her for that that is perfectly fine and i think that some of those are are very fine choices especially i mean i I just i kind of you're like no no i don't want any famous actress i just want my mama (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. <laughs> now, guys, it's time for my favorite part of the show, which literary stud may or may not know about. And it's called the tea question. And it's where we get to sip some tea on our guest. Now, I can ask you a silly question or I can ask you a serious question. And I'm ready for this. I know our Listeners are ready for this, but literary stud, are you ready for this? Let's get it. I got it. Okay. I like that. I like that. Let's keep that same energy. (laughs) Okay. And our tea question this week is, what impression do you think you give when you meet someone for the first time? Um, I give a serious impression. Um. I have a very serious countenance at times. I can be um, taken as standoffish when actually I'm really, really friendly. Um, I just have to, you know, get a, have a couple of minutes to get to know you a little better. And then you'll see that, you know, I'm, I'm really friendly. Um, but yeah, most people say that I look mean. It's <laughs> probably what I get. That is interesting. Um, and I, I'd be more interested in uh, this. Is, this is just me being nosy. But um, they say that the sign that they meet when they meet someone for the first time is the rising sign. So um, my rising sign is Capricorn. I'd be interested to see what your rising sign is uh, because you come off as very serious to other people. Yeah, I'd be curious too. I'd have to find that out because I, I don't yeah. think I've ever looked that up yet. Yeah, it's it's like there's this whole other branch of astrology, which we're not going to go into right now, because otherwise we'd be talking for like three hours about <laughs> different aspects of astrology, which, I mean, sounds interesting to me, but I don't think our listeners would be interested in that. <laughs> now, before we go, where can the listeners out there keep in touch with you online? Oh, um, see, well, I'm on Facebook. Uh, obviously literary stud lesbian author i'm on instagram um at literary stud um my website literary stud uh, dot com and then of course if you ever want to just drop me a line you know i'm i'm like i said i'm friendly uh literary stud at gmail dot com I love it. I love it. Thank you so much again, despite our technical issues for hanging in there with me. We just had a a great interview. Thank you so much for sitting down with me and just talking to me about different things. Well, you're very welcome. My pleasure. It was fun. I, I, you know, like I said, I appreciate you making time 
and, you know, finding time out of your schedule to fit me in uh, when we couldn't do it the last time. So, you know, it was it was fun. Hopefully we'll do it again. Yes. Anytime. You're welcome back on the show. Anytime. Great. And listeners, that is our show. And uh, in addition to our wonderful guest, Literary Stud, I just want to thank Joby for this week's theme. Now, we will be back next week with Aunt Georgia Lee. Thank you all for coming out. And until next time, bye-bye.